Hello and welcome to ID the Future. I'm Casey Luskin, broadcasting with Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture in Seattle, Washington. We have here in the studio with us today, Dr. Michael Denton, one of our senior fellows who holds an MD from Bristol University, as well as a PhD from King's College in London. And his work has had a critical impact on the debate over Darwinian evolution. Many of our ID of the Future listeners might be familiar with his books, including Evolution of Theory and Crisis and Nature's Destiny, How the Laws of Biology Reveal Purpose in the Universe. So, Dr. Denton, thank you very much for coming on the show with us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Casey. Well, we're very grateful to have you here in the U.S., all the way from down under, visiting with us. You're here right now for the premiere of the Privileged Species documentary, and we're very excited about that. Well, I'm also very excited about being here and looking forward to the premiere tonight. Very good, very good. Well, there's a whole bunch of topics I'd like to cover with you today. And as you know, over the last couple of days, we've had a number of very stimulating conversations over tea and sitting around just chatting. And one of the topics that came up is paradigm shifts in the history of science and what do they look like and what are some of the paradigm shifts that you personally have witnessed in your own lifetime or that we're seeing right now in biology. And so I'd love to talk to you about paradigm shifts and maybe just first ask the question, what paradigm shifts have you seen during your own lifetime and how do we recognize when a paradigm shift is going on? Well, firstly, in my own lifetime, I've seen really, I think, three, two in the geological sciences. One, of course, was the tectonic revolution. Before the tectonic revolution, everybody insisted that a continent couldn't move. <laughs> and this was the orthodox view of all geologists, right? really, right until a, virtually 1960. And then after the 60s came the tectonic revolutions. That's one revolution I remember. A complete inversion of the previous idea. The previous idea was that a continent could never move. How can a continent move? <laughs> and now we know they've been moving for 4 billion years over the surface of the Earth. The other geological paradigm shift was going from the notion that all craters in the universe and the craters on Earth were formed by volcanic activity, not by meteor strikes. I can't remember the exact decade when this transformation occurred, but it certainly occurred in my academic career. I think it was in, probably in the late 60s and early 70s when opinion changed from every crater is formed by a volcano to a lot of craters are formed by meteor strikes. When the idea of meteor strikes was just too extraordinary. And of course, then there was the famous Cretaceous, end of the Cretaceous meteor strike, uh, which ended the reign of the dinosaurs. So that's two major changes. One from static continents to moving continents, and one from volcanic craters to meteor craters. Now, to come to my own specific career in the biological sciences, yes, there is now a major paradigm shift going on, of huge consequence for everybody, for all, all ideas, for ID and everything, actually. And that's going from what you might call the, the bottom-up Newtonian gene-centric view of biological systems, which dominated 20th century biology and the search for the gene. That was the, um, the holy grail of 20th century biology. Everything was in the genes. The genes were an instruction book, which if you could read the instructions, like the human genome, you could see everything from below. And that was when I was at King's doing my PhD in the late 60s, early 70s. I was a gene centricist, like everybody else. These were the glory days of molecular biology, the glory days of the sort of gene-centric model of the world. But really, since the mid-90s onward, 
increasingly it's become obvious that this is not going to work. You might remember that, in fact, Aristotle's conception of nature was that the bricks didn't determine the architecture of the house. There was something else in nature, formal cause, final cause, which determined the architecture of the house, not the bricks. Of course, if there was something wrong with the bricks, then the architecture would not, wouldn't work properly because you need good bricks to make the architecture. But the actual plan of the house was not in the bricks. And that's really now what looks like going on in modern biology. And there's, there's two reasons for this. In fact, basically, I, I'm not claiming for one minute that we're back with Aristotle yet. But when you move away from the gene-centric view, and you say that, well, the higher order of life isn't specified in the genes, then it's got to come from somewhere. And where it increasingly seems to be coming from is emergent biophysical and biomechanical forces which shape cells and embryos, okay? And these emergent biophysical, biomechanical forces, the scholar that's associated with this thinking is Stuart Newman in Columbia. He spent his whole life arguing for this particular position. And now, of course, I think he's being vindicated so the idea is that we're going from, is a, you talk about paradigm shifts, there's a paradigm shift from the idea that everything was in the genes to that, no, not everything's in the genes. The genes are still important. And for medical geneticists like myself, genes are very, very important, right? Because when a gene goes wrong, you have a disease, right? So there's a very, very important role in biology for studying genes, particularly in medicine, right? But the genes don't determine the higher order. That's the key point. And what's determining the higher order are epigenetic forces, these are emergent properties of embryos, properties of cell tissues, layers of cells, and things like this. And these emergent biomechanical forces, these are molding the embryo, you see. So they're acting like Aristotle's forms <laughs> in nature. Now, I'm not saying for one minute that we're back to the whole Aristotle sort of philosophy of nature, but it's a move from gene centricism to a view of the world which is similar, has echoes of the Aristotelian idea. And there's another, another reason, not only is it emergent <coughs> biophysical and biomechanical forces which are shaping embryos, and these forces are not in the genes, they're emergent, you've also got the increasing evidence that the meaning of genes is determined by the whole cell, sort of, it's like a downward thing. Where a gene is synthesized, what it does, what it means, or what its biological function is, is increasingly determined by the, the whole cell in which it's expressed. In other words, gene meaning is determined by the whole cell. And this is, of course, introduces the fascinating idea of sort of downward causation in nature, which is again, a classical and Aristotelian idea. So this is one revolution which I'm witnessing myself. And you, you experienced this revolution in your own thinking. Uh, you have said that back in the 60s, when you were in graduate school, you were very much a gene centrist. 100%. And now you've, you've moved to this new sort of epigenetic position, recognizing there are many forces beyond the gene that are vital to influence organisms and cells. So could you maybe talk about your own transformation in thinking and what was some of the key evidence that maybe led you away from a gene-centric view? Well, basically, a certain number of definite considerations. I've always been fascinated in the red cell because the red cell was my PhD, the development of the red cell was my PhD thesis at King's, right? And I've always been fascinated in that. And of course, you could ask the question, well, what determines the form of the red cell? What determines the form of the red cell is basically the biophysical and biomechanical properties of the membrane. And these are emergent properties, higher order properties, right? You can look at the thousand or so genes expressed in the red cell. You can analyze them exhaustively forever, but you can never find a biophysical or a biomechanical force in the genes. It's something which comes about when you put the gene products together, they express new phenomena, right? higher order structures. So I suppose that considering the red cell and watching the literature about the red cell, and gradually if you follow the literature about 
what determines the form of red cell, you'll find that, in fact, increasingly over the last 15 years, it's become apparent that the form is determined by the membrane itself, and there's no instruction in the genes for the red cell. There's a beautiful paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy a few years ago, which says that the, I'm quoting almost exactly, not completely exactly, but paraphrasing it, the form of the red cell is encoded in the membrane which is epigenetic. So there was considering the cell form and cell structure, which led me to realize that you cannot compute the form of a cell from just looking at the genes. However exhaustively you look at them, you can't do it actually. And I published a paper in biology and philosophy, sort of arguing this point a few years back. So my transition was partly because of my following the story of the red cell, but then also following Newman's work and the work of other people in developmental biology, because the developmental biology is being drawn more and more towards biophysics and biomechanics. So Jonathan Wells, who I'm sure you're familiar with some of his arguments and ideas, he makes the argument that when we find all of these epigenetic sources of information that are beyond the DNA, and when Darwinian evolution says that new variation arises because of mutations in the DNA, And that's how we get variation upon which selection can act. When we have all of these sources of information that are outside of the DNA, that really Darwinian evolution cannot explain the origin of that form or those important sources of information because it's all dependent upon information that's not in the DNA. It can't arise through mutations. This becomes a criticism that Jonathan Wells has made that therefore Darwinian evolution really has a problem accounting for a lot of this new epigenetic information, the origin of the epigenetic information, because it's not in the DNA. Do you think that epigenetic information poses a problem to Darwinian theory? Or maybe I could ask a broader question. This whole paradigm shift from the gene-centric view to more yes, epigenetic yes. view, are there implications for Absol- Darwinian evolution? What yeah. do you think they are? Absolutely. I would put them in slightly different ways. First of all, the the Newtonian bottom-up mechanistic view depends on a blueprint which specifies the form of the onct. And what Darwinism says is you keep changing this blueprint and by changing the blueprint, the instructions, you get differences in the organism. This is a very, very mechanical view of biological systems, right? What I see the epigenetic revolution is challenging this is, first of all, it begins to raise the terrible specter that natural forces, natural laws have played a major role in generating the forms of living things. And so and this is another way of expressing what Jonathan's saying, I think. Now, very significantly, for instance, Stuart Newman, he claims, that's a bit controversial, but this, this is an, an indicative of where epigenetics, this new sort of idea that the higher order of life is arising from natural emergent forces during development. He's claiming that there's only a limited number of gastrula possible because of these emergent forces. In other words, there's not totally infinite number of ways you can arrange tissues and cells. Now, that clearly is a huge challenge to Darwinism, because what that's meaning is that the basic body plans of the major phyla might be being determined by biophysical and biomechanical forces, which are beyond the genes. And that's a huge challenge, because that's the emergence of essentialism. Once again, it's back to Aristotle again. It's the idea that the forms of the biological world are emergent in the properties of matter, if you want to express it like that. And these forms are a limited number constrained by biophysical forces. So that's a huge challenge, if that's right. So yes, as you leave the gene-centric view and you go into an epigenetic view, you're moving towards substantial form. The idea that the forms of living things are being determined by eternal, universal forces of nature. And that's a huge challenge to the Darwinian view. That would say that the vertebrate phyla, mollusca, the various 
types of animals on Earth are actually being molded by biophysics, not by Darwinian selection. That's going a little way beyond the evidence, but I mean, extrapolating ahead, this paradigm shift gathers momentum. That's where it's carrying us to. It's carrying us to the idea that a lot of the form of living things is determined by higher order biophysical, biomechanical processes. I think that's another way of saying what Jonathan said. It's a different expression of the same idea. Well, this is a really fascinating discussion, and I think we're going to have to continue this in a second podcast. So will you stay with us for some more discussion? <laughs> yes, I'll stay. All right. Very okay. good. Well, I'm Casey Luskin with ID the Future. Stay tuned for more with Dr. Michael Denton. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute 2014. For more information, visit www.intelligentdesign.org or www.idthefuture.com.